Hi, this is Paul. Friday, I did a live stream where I talked to Ken, Ken Lowry and Jordan Hall. <clears throat> and that grew out of what Ken Lowry said in the video that he had done with Jordan Hall. I just want to play that because I didn't play it. I was planning on playing it on Friday because I, I thought it was an extremely poignant moment. I actually isolated this clip and put it on Vanderclips. If you don't know what Vanderclips is, Vanderclips is just a place that I can throw videos that I think are important that I can find for later reference. Okay, so this is this is great. Okay, Let, this 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 brings up something that I think is really really important and worth talking about, and it's where I ended the little uh, reflection piece that I wrote about your conversation with with uh, Daniel, and it has to do with. It has to do with my ability to participate in church right now because I have people ask me not on, I mean, not infrequently, right? Like, well, where do you go to church, right? Because like I like to talk about God. I like I mean I'll, I'll talk about all I want to do is talk about God and Jesus, like that, and that's why I, I say like I find myself more a Christian because Jesus specifically for me is like that's like let's go there if we can go anywhere let's go there. Um, but my answer to that question has become like I'm, I'm trying really hard to figure out like how do I answer that question truthfully because I don't know like I don't understand it and I think what it really comes down to is that in my upbringing I I was there was a deep sense of trauma in relation to Christianity and church now that trauma, it's interesting because, like, even as I hear you talk about these different people, people around me who had a similar sort of experience of church that I did, they will talk about particular people as seeming to be disingenuous and inauthentic and abusing the system and things like that. That wasn't really my experience so much. Really? My experience, you know, my parents, everyone that I think I, I, I got to know um, in those churches, I think there was a real sense of authenticity i think the greatest gift my parents gave me was that like they were they were committed wholeheartedly to doing the best thing the best thing they could manage mm -hmm. however it made sense and that ended up being pretty traumatic because of some particular you know just circumstances of of, of their life and and who they ended up around and those sorts of things but those other people they ended up around in the church too that had that, that brought some of these traumatic strains, they were pretty authentic too. I think, like, I don't, I don't see them as being malicious people, mm. but there were these strange strains of it that incurred on my relation to reality and my relation to God specifically as mediated by the church in that upbringing that were really harmful, really difficult, really, you know, like, caused all the sorts of problems that then get projected into this cultural model. And I notice, like, my problem now is that when I go to a church, I have a hard time, like, I have to, when I go to church, all that shows back up for me mm. in a way that it doesn't have to when I, when I don't go to church, right? And so when I do go, when I go and visit churches now, I've sort of I've sort of become aware of the fact that it's going to be an exercise for me. It's like it's a spiritual exercise for me to go to church to deal with my own trauma. Now, there's a way that I can make that a way bigger deal than it actually is. <laughs> and that's a real danger. 
right? Um, and, you know, my wife and I are, you know, my wife has her part of that too. And like, so, so we're trying to work through that and actually find some church where we can plug into. And that's, so that this is just a particular snapshot of where I'm at on this journey. But I think really what I'm trying to point to here is like, I wonder how many of us that are in this sort of like post-Christian space and trying to work our way around the edges of all these issues like faith and excavate all these things that have, that became sort of hollowed out and, um, and slandered, as you said at the beginning, uh, virtues, Christian virtues that got sort of like slandered and hollowed out. Um, I was just working through a, a process doing this with some friends on the notion of purity, especially from a Christian perspective, which is that that's a big one, right? That's going to, that, that causes all kinds of cultural, bah, right? Um, <laughs> but as we're sort of excavating it, we're like, whoa, okay, this is really powerful and really beautiful. Mm -hmm. So it's like, there's this, there's this process that I think we're all sort of trying to go through where it's like, okay, how do we, how do we remain faithful to the position that we've just find ourselves in? Right. I just, I just showed up in this life with this particular set of, you know, traumas that were given to me in relation to God. And now I'm like, no, no, I really want that thing. I really want that relationship with God. I really want that relationship with Christ, but I also need to be true to who I truly am. I'm not going to leave any parts of those behind. And so like coming back into that, well, there's, there's no but there, right? Because I am the truth. You can't have a proper relationship with Christ if you are not fully in truth. Like there's there's, there's no uh, there's no alternative. So you actually have the, the this other ha half over here, like that deepening of truth is a part of the coming back up here. And yeah. maybe that's been part of the journey that we collectively have been on for maybe a few generations is kind of like a carving out of a new capacity to delve more deeply into truth so that we can actually develop more capacity to come more fully into relationship with Christ. Well, I'll just finish the clip because I probably thought it was important to come. To um, next. I've had that sense, right? I have a sense of that this has not all been um, like a giant digression. Um, you know, the, the, the Lord uses things to move everything in the, towards the good. And whether or not we've been, we call it, doing our natural, our orient, our normal thing and then worshiping a golden calf 20 seconds after crossing the Red Sea, which we probably have been. Nonetheless, all of that is being put to some proper good use. And so, um, I really love that interchange because Ken so poignantly laid out what I hear again and again and again from people who are there they want to believe they want to go to church they want to go there and yet it's it's not it, it's church but it's not church it's believing in terms of wanting to believe it, it's a whole range of things that they're wrestling with one of the one of the things that I was impressed I've been impressed by I listened to the initial Jordan Hall podcast that I made a video of a couple of weeks ago I listened to the Jim Rupp podcast that one was I think even more significant that was super interesting because Jim Rupp and Jordan Hall have a long standing relationship I, I learned a ton not just the second half of the podcast where they deal specifically with his Christianity and Jim Rupp is 
really trying to not be dismissive, but just doesn't have a lot of respect for uh, the Christianity that Jim Rutt left. And, but, but it was super interesting. One of the, one of the things that I've been seeing in this is how Jordan in some ways has had to become an amateur theologian to make his way back here. And he's already, I think, making some real contribution with what he's doing. I, I've had an interesting listening career with Jordan Hall. Of course, he's been on my radar really since the Rebel Wisdom days, where he would be on Res Rebel Wisdom, this whole Game B tribe, all of that. And, and often I would listen to Jordan Hall, and he would be, I would either have two experiences. Much of the time, it would be so abstract, it would just seem to float away. And I'd be like, not sure what this guy's talking about. Every now and then he would land something and I would say, oh, that's really brilliant. That's really helpful. And that almost had my first conversation with him on the, the STOA because I thought his commons idea I made a video about that. And Peter Lindbergh saw it and wanted me me on with Jordan Hall and John Verveke, and then dyslexic time zone me got the time zones reversed, and I missed the I missed the Stoa. So that's that's what happened in that situation. But what he was talking about the Commons, that was really I thought really cogent and powerful. And so the first half of the Jim Rutt the Jim Rutt show with Jordan Hall, I mean, this Christianity was in the second part, but the first part was very relevant too. Because unlike a number of other people, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, unlike another, a number of other people, Jordan Hall has not decided to become a Christian only of the mind. Jordan Hall, and I think this is really key, decided to become a Christian of the practice and the body, not only his personal body, but that of his wife and his daughter. They moved into a community and then become a member of the body of Christ because, you know, he he basically decided, I can't really judge or evaluate this in a truly embodied way unless I actually lean into it with everything that I have. And I think that has made a huge difference in terms of the transformation that we've seen in Jordan Hall so far. I can listen to him now and I get him in a way I didn't get him before. Now, part of this is obviously topical because he's discussing Christian religion and, in fact, reformed Christian and religion and theology. And yeah, that's that's those are the waters that I have swum in my whole life. So... He's he sort of he sort of swam into my area of the pond, and so obviously I get him better now. But what I also see him doing, which is really interesting for me, is that I've been over in this religious area, sort of trying to get my mind around the game B types, um, the the transformation that happened via the cell phone. I mean, I found that Jim Rutt. I'd listened to a few Jim Rutt shows before where some individuals that have been this corner or this corner adjacent have been in. I found Rutt to be interesting. But Jordan Hall has come this, come to this, and he is not, you know, if you think of Jordan Hall as the rich young ruler, Jesus says, come follow me, and Jordan Hall said, okay, 
<laughs> I'm going to move my wife and my daughter and I'm going to go into a place and I am going to... And, and the reason he did this is because he tried all sorts of other places and he would get to a degree into the community. And Now, this, these are just new beginnings and Hall is very, very upfront with that. Many of us have been working this stuff for a very long time. And so Ken Lowry's point here is, is a very important one because some of us have been lifers in this thing. And so we've seen the good and the bad. We've seen less than ideal situations. We've had um, plenty of ups and downs and bumps along the road. And we have yet to see you know, one way or another, Jordan Hall is in the honeymoon period in those halcyon days of Acts 2 and Acts 4. And the Ananias and Sapphira moment may, may not have come or the the fight between the, the Aramaic-speaking widows and the Greek-speaking widows. That point may not have come yet, but when it comes, we will see, we will see what happens. But I've been, I've been very impressed at the way that, that Jordan Hall has taken to this and taken to this strongly. And again, the way he took to it was not sort of thinky-talky first, but life first and then evaluation. Now, again, I want to be fair here because I know there'll be a, a, a number of Christian cheerleaders that will say, yes, yes, you should try. And a bunch of you out there will say, I did try. And then this happened. And so I'm, I'm, I'm a little, bit, a little bit disillusioned or I'm sobered or I'm out or what have you. Because again, you see, I was just thinking about comments on the, the Verveke video where some people were kind of complaining because I seem to want to have it both ways. I seem to want to be a pastor on the internet, but then I, I don't how, I don't somehow, I don't know what people imagine I should do, discipline people. I, I can't, I can't say it enough that um, if your pastor is on the internet, you don't really have a relationship with your pastor. You need to have a local one. You need to be in a church. You need to be embedded. And there is your body of Christ. Now, how exactly this is working on the internet? There's some really interesting questions about that. And the Jim Rutt, maybe I'll play some of that. That was such a such an interesting podcast. All right, it's it's at the end of it. Let's go pitfalls and of course there are definitely pitfalls but the point is something like well i'll give you an example one of the principles that a friend of mine said is that his understanding of scripture is that one of the fundamental elements is something called soul sovereignty and this is part of what was governing his relationship with me for decades which is you jim have a soul and you have exclusive sovereignty over that soul it is utterly inappropriate immoral wrong for me to endeavor to bring your soul in any direction other than when, where you choose to bring it. I can share with you the truth that I have received in my life as best I can. I can share with you my testimony of my life experience as best I can. And I can answer the questions that you ask me with as much earnestness and capacity as I can, but I cannot endeavor to convince and certainly not to propagandize you of literally anything. And it's actually one of the worst possible sins would be to do that. And not just me, God, has granted that sovereignty to you. The keys to your soul are yours and yours alone. Well, if you take that as a core principle at the very bottom, then you begin to see how theocracy is a violation of that in the most egregious fashion imaginable. So what do you think your church means by that? What they mean is, is, is twofold. 
One is a real reaction against an error that happened in the American church, particularly the Southern church in the mid-century, which was a withdrawal, a withdrawal from the world, a one-and-done, dot a couple I's, cross a couple T's, learn a particular secret password, kind of like you say with the Catholics, confess on your deathbed and everything else is good to go. Look, the world is utterly fundamentally corrupt. It ain't going to get any better. You've received Christ's salvation. Hunker down. Keep your head down. Sin maybe a little bit less than other people. Hope for death soon. Go to heaven. That actually was a pretty significant piece of the American Protestant universe for way too long. And that is something that our particular church is aware of and is endeavoring to heal and restore. So that's a big piece. That's actually much more important than any of the other elements. The notion of, no, we actually have a responsibility. We actually are called to be co-creators or collaborators, to cooperate with God and to support the kingdom of heaven on earth. We're here for a reason. So our salvation begins something, but the actual sanctification, the process of living in the world the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? It's here. We're supposed to be doing this in this world now, according to the way that when you look at the Gospels, Christ talked about the kingdom of heaven, what it looks like and how to live it. He talked very, very, very little about your personal salvation, how you should hunker down and not do anything until heaven comes. And then the other piece is actually, in some sense, very straightforward. We'll return back to our... Now, you can see already that Jordan Hall is processing a lot of theology in the context of his church. That's key here, because you, know, you listen to this conversation, so he's talking to this person, he's talking to this person. He's not just sort of chasing celebrities on the internet. I mean, he didn't he didn't say, oh, Paul Vanderclay is a friend of John Vervecchia. I must talk to him to find out the answer. No, he's, he's working with people on the ground in the church that he's sharing his life with, and he's processing this stuff. It doesn't mean he's divorced from his game B friends or all these other things. And he's he's doing doing a lot of doing a lot of this doing a lot of this work. If you are actually living in the context of religion, like you have a religion, <laughs> in the way we've been describing it, and you have a hierarchy of values, you would be engaging in the worst kind of hypocrisy if you did not fully commit to living those values into the world as an individual in the communities. That Another thing that you can point out in terms of what he's doing with language here, he is taking what, what he's clearly done is he's learned from his church and he's using the language he already has and he's bridging the worlds. And that, of course, I find super helpful because Jonathan Peugeot, in a sense, has bridged some of this world through his work. I've been trying to, you know, do bridging with John Verveke and Jonathan Peugeot. And now Jordan Hall is is doing some of that, again, but not from sort of the outside, thinking about Christianity in the abstract, but from the inside and saying, I dove in, I'm in it, this is what I'm doing. And because I'm in it, I'm learning fast and I'm trying to figure this out you're living in. Let's go from there, because this contrasts pretty strongly with late epoch game B thinking around coherent pluralism. The idea that we'd have membranes of various sorts, and they would be enclosed in other membranes, not necessarily in a hierarchical fashion, could be in a network fashion, and that each membrane and superset of membranes would develop its own virtues, values, and norms. But other than a small coherent core, very small coherent core, membranes would make their own judgments about what constituted a life well lived. And as I've often said in my public talks, I could imagine two membranes, proto-bees, let's say, civiums, five miles apart, just to be extreme, I have one bans abortion totally. If you have an abortion, you're out. The other one, abortion mandatory. 
No children may be born live to any member of this civium. And I have said publicly that either of those could be a game B membrane, so long as they are part of the coherent core of three or four core values around how we live, which do not get down to that level. What is wrong with that idea? And why should essentially there be a universalizing way in which the Christian church wants to make everybody adhere to their game plan? Well, I would actually say a slightly higher level. So the hypothesis is, is that there is something like good, that the arc of history brings us towards the good. But it's very difficult for us to discern the good. And we make errors constantly. And we live in a tissue of our own fabrication almost always. But it's there. And, and let's just say for the moment a way of saying it is that God created the good or is the good. And the hope, the yearning, the desire is that all people ultimately find their way to that because it is in fact actually the good. Right? It's just like, like with your own child. It's a better, the best example is like with your own child. You want your child to have two very distinct parts of life. One is you want them to have freedom. You want them to become their own person and to live the life that is theirs to live and, and, and on their own terms so they can truly, authentically actually own the life they live. And two, you want them to actually live a good life. You want them to live a life where they are oriented towards the highest possible good and they are experiencing that as richly and fully as possible. That's actually another way of saying that exact same phrase. I don't know if you saw my recent tweet, I put out one with a triangle for the personal level, virtue, responsibility, and freedom. And all three constrain each other. I would argue that's a pretty close snapshot of how we should think about ourselves and our children. But, and our neighbor, though they may choose different trade-offs, you know, my view is that the good is socially constructed and that it can vary and that cultures that have very different histories may have, say, very... Now, I really like the way Jordan sort of framed that. The, the socially constructed part is difficult because then it's not that you, you, you sort of flirt with relativism. But there, there's always a way in which, this is sort of what I talk about in terms of dead reckoning, and that we're always sort of figuring out, is this good? And we don't, we certainly have ideals, we have things we're navigating by, but we're always trying to figure out, is this good, is this not good? Um, and a big part of what happened in what has been happening, again, in the Jordan Peterson space, the reoccurrence of natural law as something that people are focusing on is the fact that, well, and Jonathan Peugeot, that there are structures that actually, that there are pre-human structures that actually are pulling here. There's a gravity to this goodness that it isn't the case, that any old thing can be good. There is variation and different ways of trying to figure out good and experiencing good. There's better or worse. There's um, side one, side two. There's all of these things, but there's, there is, in fact, a, a good. Good is one of the transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful very different settings for freedom versus responsibility. You can look at the psychological work done on East Asians versus weird people, you know, white educated, you know, yeah, yeah. They literally see the world differently at the level uh, with East Asians seeing relationships much more strongly than objects, the way people speak about scenes when they're describing a picture, they're qualitatively different. And so what strikes me is not at all unreasonable that someone who 
His family has 2,000, 5,000 years of East Asian culture, might come to a different setting between freedom and responsibility than somebody who is post-enlightenment weird person. And I think that's, at least my take, is that's okay. And I can see a Game B world where there are many settings. I call it coherent pluralism. And the church doesn't buy that. The church believes that what the Bible says is inherently true, and everybody better follow that or they will be in trouble. (laughs) Well, okay, let's just continue to hit on that. So I do not believe that the good is socially constructed, but I do believe that our understanding of the good, by necessity, is socially constructed. Our ability to teach each other about it is in relationship between those two. Part of it, of course, is our own experience, which is in relationship with something like reality. And the second is with our projections or our models and our stories and our narratives. And those are going to, by necessity, be different. That's true, by the way, for groups as well as individuals. My understanding of the nature of the good is that you cannot bring another person into the good by means of tyranny. Maybe I can just end it like that. You cannot bring another person into the good by means of tyranny. If you deeply, deeply love another person's soul, as I would propose the good tells you you should, then you also know that it is a heartbreaking effort of relationship to endeavor to create a space that cultivates them towards this thing which you don't understand and which they don't understand and the journey towards which is going to be fraught with all kinds of error and pain. That's the right way of looking at it, right? This is not a simple prospect. It's the most painful thing that could possibly be imagined because, of course, it is the human existence in this world and needs to be held in that way, like in the heart as just tragedy or post-tragic. This is the key. Tragedy and then hope. Where next for the journey of Jordan Hall? You know, you've been a person who, for as long as I've known you, since 2008, has been a person on a mission to bring something to the world, Right. And you've tried things, and you still have some vision. You've now made a very huge change in your personal metaphysics, in your personal community, in many, many things. And this is, and I take this as absolutely true that you've done this in good faith. Where's the journey of Jordan Hall go next after this big change? At the bottom, of course, this is going to be a lifelong exploration for me. So I'm painfully aware of the fact that I've got a very late start on this process. Again, I've got friends who've been working on this for 40 years. I've been working on it for a year, more or less. In all likelihood, I will pass away well in advance of me reaching anything like a truly mature theology, for example. In any event, that's gonna be a part of it. Like how how do I make a, a commitment to living as deeply as possible in discipleship? That's one. Two. You know, being in truly intimate relationship and communion with my church, which, by the way, involves struggling over certain questions. You know, like you mentioned this orthodox perspective on the, uh, the Trinity, the statement of it, which is a Western articulation. Is that actually proper? I don't know. The Eastern Orthodox might have it right. Uh, how do we navigate that? How do we chew that? How do we continue to grow our wisdom as a church? But more fundamentally, by the way, we're facing a really profound problem. We're just about tapping out at that Dunbar 3 threshold, 150 people in the, in the church right now plus or minus a few. How do we deal with that? How do we grow? Okay, so give you a little taste of the theologizing, the arguing, how the conversation that he's doing. And this part got very interesting because the church has long played with these numbers. During the art conference, we talked about civilizational Christianity, this way up here at the top. That's massive, 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 sort of diffused. Um, and 
there are, let's say, denominations, the Catholic Church, a billion people, centuries old, massive. And then you've got, let's say, a cathedral in a city, hundreds if not thousands of people under one thing. And I was just listening to, uh, what was it this morning? Um, so someone was basically making the point, you know, it's you have these mega churches where thousands and thousands of people are there, but, oh, actually it wasn't anybody on the internet. It was my, it was a family member, my brother-in-law who was saying, you know, you can go to, he goes to a large church. You can go to that large church, but he and my sister back when they were, they actually met each other in a, a singles ministry. And my sister was teaching in the area. He was working and they met each other. And we talked about their friend group and all of what that developed. Well, that's all in this smaller little circle. And then Bible studies and small groups. And so Christians have long been playing with these numbers, even right from the start. The early church, you have these house churches beginning with just a few. They grow. Well, the house, because you didn't have a, a set building as a church, the house was sort of the container. So then you had to have others. And then once you had other churches meeting in homes, and these these could be large homes because you could, you could have a group of 25, 50, 75 people perhaps, including slaves and, you know, people in various now suddenly you have the question of how do these groups relate in a city? And so churches have long been playing with this. And now we've got this internet where how is that going to figure into this? How do we grow without scaling? Is there a way to do that? We've got something very good going on. There's no question about that. It's extremely attractive. Many people come and they stay. Some people, many people have left their existing churches to come there. So there's something that wants and needs to grow. But... If you grow massive and add a 1,000 people, that'll definitely die. If you fragment, that's tricky. So that's actually a big question for us as a church and me personally, for lots of reasons I'm sure you can understand. Like we're actually now at a, shockingly, a relatively mature proto-bee, but well ahead of the curve because uh, we got to sort of leapfrog or uh, what do you call it, bootstrap. Third, and this is you know, linear, is, okay, how does this work with the larger community? I happen to be in a town of about 8,000 probably 93% go to church in some meaningful sense. So it's very, a very Christian town, although lots of different denominations, including some Orthodox. But how do I pro properly participate in the health and the wholesomeness of this place without imposing my own perspectives or value, limited values too heavily and causing it to break? And by the way, in the context of what I expect will be very choppy waters, right? I think... Now, again, I mean, he's, divid he's dived into a town which, like you said, maybe 93% of the people in the town attend church seriously. That's an unusual thing, especially as, you know, maybe a town of 8,000. Okay. How about a city of a few million? And then you can look at church participation as a percentage of the community in various places. There's, for those of you who don't know it, the church in North America has studied itself with an intensity that most people outside of this don't know. There, there is data on all of this stuff, especially the neo-evangelical wave that came through America in the 50s and 60s. You can read, again, Molly Worthen's, uh, before she was a Christian, her Disciples of Reason. Church intensely studies itself. There's intensive studies on many, many areas of this stuff. 
but he's living in an unusual town. And so he's living in a sort of neo-Christendom that perhaps is even more participatory than, let's say, even, let's say, a New England pilgrim town. If you look at the conversations in Pilgrim and Puritan New England, there was a constant desire. This gets to this gets to Charles Taylor's one speed, two speed. There's a constant desire to have 100% full participation in the church. But now when Jordan Hall is talking about, and, and again, some of you, he, he's going to a Calvinist church. Some of you might hear that and say, well, what about this? I mean, Calvinists have, everybody sort of has this stereo. I think he's going to a Calvinist church. I don't know what his church is going to. I'm not going to research it. But people have these ideas of what being a Calvinist means. And you can find Calvinists that sort of play that out and others that don't. Basically, Calvinism was underneath much of the Protestantism that settled America and continues to be so even among Calvinism's under underneath Arminianism, okay? Arminianism is a deviation from Calvinism. So Calvinism is the bigger box, Arminianism is a is a smaller set. Many Baptists in America, the fundamentally Calvinist roots. Again, this goes all the way back to the Pilgrims and the Puritans. So John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion had a deep impact on sort of second generation second generation Protestant theology. Anyway, so he's wrestling with these things and at least Christianity has become non-coercive in terms of those who don't identify as Christian. That's a deep part of Christianity. So you see all of this anxiety about Christian theocracy in America and it's like it's it's most Christians most Christians really don't play that well what about laws against abortion I don't know well what about laws against murder is that Christian no no murder is sort of rationality morality and abortion is Christian morality okay um all of you know religion is you don't religion wants you as we'll get to we won't get that far with the Eric Weinstein thing but but again, you can see Jordan is working through all of these things, but he's doing it from the inside. Economically, politically, geopolitically. So for me, that those three are significant. And then the fourth is where proper, and where, by the way, invited, I will do nothing to present myself out there, but if invited, to speak as much wisdom and understanding as I can to the benefit of other people who want to do those first three for themselves in the places that they love and care about. So we expect to see, as you know, the area where you live is right in the middle of Billy Graham territory. So do you see yourself as the next Billy Graham? Oh, no, definitely, definitely not. <laughs> Although it does seem like I have some responsibility for speaking to the subtribe that I used to be you know, a significant part of. The autistic technology agnostics, many of them have reached out to me. And I will have a conversation where anybody who's reaching out to me is in good faith, which so far everyone has. And where I have the energy and resources and feel like I can actually respond to them properly. Um, if somebody's in a real crisis, I don't think I'm the right guy to talk to. If I find myself traveling, evangelizing in a public fashion, I will go on a ride. This will be like my commitment. At that point, execute on that uh, NDA agreement we had way back. <laughs> okay. And I guess the final, final wrap is, you know, you've always thought really big picture at civilizational change level. Are you going to spend any more cycles on that? Or are you going to focus on the three or four Dunbar numbers above your 150? 
Well, the interesting, the answer to that actually is, is pretty profound. The answer is actually the question, it's called vocation, which is say, what's your proper calling? My responsibility is to actually find and then carry out my vocation. And it may very well be the case that I have some real responsibility for continuing to think and work on this sort of civilization level stuff. And if so, then I will. But as I mentioned, when I wrote that essay on Medium, I didn't want to write that essay on Civium. I spent a good solid two and a half years not, but it kept coming up in a way that made it that I felt I had to. And so if it is my responsibility, if it is my cross to bear, if it is mine to do, then I will do it. And we'll find out. I don't know. I look forward to I hope you do, because I always learned a shitload talking with you about these things. And I remain on that mission. And uh, I hope we can collaborate in the future. I hope you guys actually make good on your promise to come out to this region. We can collaborate in person. Yeah. And, you know, we live close and uh, we'll definitely be down there this spring. That'll be fun. It was a shame we couldn't make it over the holidays when. Okay. So, again, just look at the shape of the change in his life. Now, I want to drop into this conversation. So Eric Weinstein was on Chris Williamson again. It hasn't been that long since he was on there. And the first part of the conversation didn't really capture my attention, but uh, as it got going, more and more it did. Now, this was really interesting. Let's go. Uh, reflecting on the odd horseshoe that we've seen from people like Douglas Murray and Sam Harris, who were very critical of religion, and still are, mm. to a large degree. But especially, you know, 20 years ago, kind of breaking down a lot of these walls, being involved in, in being skeptical about the role of it. And yet, the, there's now almost a return to sure. nostalgia for a, a grand narrative that unifies everybody. There's a concern about what has come in in its place. Is it wokeism? Is it, is it Trumpism? Is it... How do you see that? It's too trite to say baby in bathwater. It's easier to say we don't know the second order effects of the things that we do. A uh, perfect example of this is after the introduction of the contraceptive pill, abortions went up and single motherhood went up. That's like a third or fourth order effect that nobody could have predicted. I don't think. Nobody, it would have taken an unbelievably sharp mind to have gone, okay, so if before contraceptive birth control is available reliably for the woman to use, an accidental pregnancy is seen as the man's obligation as opposed to the woman's choice, but after that it's reversed, which means that the shotgun wedding goes out of the window because the owners can always be put on the woman. All right, that's interesting. I just think that sometimes you don't know the, like, better the devil you know in some ways. I have a different take on it, but um, that's interesting. Give me oh, a take. Well, okay. So... One of my riffs is that if you look at the Declaration of Independence, um, the language says, we hold these truths to be self-evident. You have to say because. You have to say we are not going into an infinite sequence of why statements. 
And by saying we hold these truths to be self-evident, you're saying you may not hold them to be self-evident. Bugger off. We hold these truths to be self-evident. If you can't hold these truths to be self-evident... It's exclusionary in some way. Absolutely. And so very often when you imagine that you're going to put everything on reason, uh, anybody who's had a, an intelligent child knows, why, Daddy? Why is that? Well, why is that? And you, eventually... It's, Infinite regret. Well, I joke with my son, and I say, uh, either the parent eventually says because... Or you end up as a theoretical physicist <laughs> because that's what that's what they exterminate. Um, you have to have an organizing principle that scales, and you know Sam's mistake um, is not understanding that even if Sam Harris can be a moral and ethical, somewhat rational human being at times. On his best day, take Sam Harris as a reasonable, rational, moral human being. You can't scale that. It doesn't scale. That's a big difference between saying it's impossible for an individual and saying it's impossible for a society. Um, the next part of that part of the document is uh, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator. You have to make a reference to ground assumption where you are not going to go below. And if you don't do that, you end up in the infinite regress. That's like, because. Yeah. If I ask you as a computer, divide one by three to infinite precision, give me the answer. It'll say 0.333 and it'll blow up. It's called a resource leak. You can't allow these infinite recursions seeking truth. And as a result of that, we didn't understand the, the load-bearing nature of, of religion in the atheist movement. Now, I say we, that was never my problem. I'm an atheist who prays, as I've said. And people get very confused. Well, who do you pray to and what do you mean? And your brain knows how to pray. Your, knows, your brain knows how to believe in a God, whether there is a God or there is no God. Well, how important is belief? I don't know. But I've... Okay, right here. So... Jordan Hall sort of goes 100% in. And, and what's interesting about Jordan Hall's journey is that he was completely outside of it. He moved into this community, which is 93% church going. He saw, he had a sense of these people have what I want. And so I'm going to start being with them and then i've i've been saying this from the beginning it is it is the most utter and obvious point about human belief if you want to believe something live amongst the people who already believe it believe is belief is caught now it doesn't mean you will it would be fully inhabited or there won't be any dissonance or uh, there won't be any work to do. Jordan Hall has clearly done a ton of work. Now, Eric Eric Weinstein takes a different approach. He is an atheist who prays. Okay, and so then, quite rightly, Chris says, "Tell me more about that." Now, Eric not only prays; he 
participates in, I'll just say, the Jewish religion. Um, you know, he clearly has some of the liturgy, I'll call it the liturgy. Yes, it clearly has the liturgy, some of the liturgy and prayers memorized. He quotes it for Baden and, and translates it here. He, but he, he still keeps it sort of at, I'm an atheist who does these things. And so then by identifying as that, I mean, I would imagine Eric would want to carve out his own way of seeing this. Um, and he may yet complain that I don't have him right, that the map doesn't fit the territory. And I basically say, yeah, um, nobody, my, my map of anyone, including my wife of 36 years, doesn't fit the territory. That's both frustration and delight. But so, uh, yeah, my map of Eric will, will certainly not be completely correct. And if Eric wants to come on and, and do a full randos conversation and tell his story, by all means, come on. Send, uh, DM me, Eric, and, and you can come on. My, my, my point is not to get you wrong here. Um, I'm just working with the words that they are presented. And so, but, but you see sort of, this dance, and if you go all the way back to what Glenn Lowry had said and how Jordan Hall responded, I think Jordan Hall is exactly correct, and that's why the waves of so-called deconstruction don't necessarily bother me because I think what we're seeing is that in the Reformation period, probably a lot of stuff that started in the 11th, 11th and 12th century fueled by the discovery of America, the Columbian Exchange, the creation of the printing press, a lot of the, the shaking of the foundations that were sort of set in the first thousand years of the church resulted in a critical mass by where you had spot outbreaks, including in Germany, and then later in England, the Netherlands, Hungary, Switzerland, a number of other places where stuff broke and had to get re-put together given all of the different ways that the world had changed. Again, I think uh, Brett Sockold's book, Transubstantiation, nicely shows how Luther, the, the, the philosophical, the, the cognitive grammar underneath had shifted so that when Luther is not in agreement with Aquinas and Aristotle, enough stuff had changed so that Luther wasn't really seeing them very well. And so that provokes the Protestant Reformation. That was sort of the last major, major transition. And, and part of what I think we're seeing, that what Glenn Lowry, even though, again, not Glenn Lowry, Ken Lowry, Glenn Lowry to a degree too, his memoir is going to be fascinating. He has spoken quite openly and transparently, both about his embrace of Christianity, then his loss of faith, and as many in this culture, his loss of faith is sort of a haunted loss. I, I, hear, I hear some of that in Eric Weinstein. I hear some of that in Chris Williamson, even though Chris didn't seem to ever have had it to lose. But this this nostalgia that Chris Williamson was just talking about is very much there. And what we're really dealing with is this idea of, okay, belief. And that's why, in many respects, when Jordan Peterson would get asked, do you believe in God? 
he would pause. He said, I don't know that you and I are on the same page in terms of God. And you go back to his first conversation on stage with Brett Weinstein and Sam Harris when he pulls out his laptop computer and starts reading to them what I call God number one. And what you mean by believe, because Jordan had a lot to say about both of those things, but everybody just sort of wanted a tribal soundbite. I've never met an atheist who never believes. I don't know if there is a God or there is no God. How important is belief? I don't know. But I've never met an atheist who never believes. And that is true. C.S. Lewis basically says the same thing. C.S. Lewis in The Abolition of Man talks about that quite openly. He says, all of these atheists around me claim to not believe, but if they were really true to their convictions, they would act very differently. In other words, there's a there are levels of implicit belief in our culture that are part of that first map, first draft that we have that we speak from to the degree that the new atheists in many ways we're complaining about Christianity underperforming in terms of the assumptions that it sort of lost its Christian, its Christian labels, but they just assume to be obviously good or rationally good. Again, read Kristen Smith's um, Soul Searching and the sociological work that he did among people. And I've never met a religious person who always believes. And that's true, too. Both of those statements are true. Because, but now within those statements are obviously assumptions about, okay, what do we mean by belief? We Fully believing has sort of become a fully inhabiting, a, a completion that most Christian theology says we actually don't arrive at in this age. Humans flit in and out of belief and non-belief. It is the nature he's right true of our of our beast and as a result of that you know I, I feel like uh, we're just not honest if, if if you claim as an atheist that you never entertain the idea of an almighty and a creator I don't believe you and if you're a religious person who says like my my belief in my Lord is a hundred percent I was like nope there's a line from George Janko where he says every man knows God when he's at his lowest place <laughs> okay the foxhole yeah. It's very interesting. Very interesting to think about what's going to come next as a whether it does descend into this sort of post for the next one that you want to do the post-apocalyptic blown out windows spring mattress in the back corner world where Now this again is where Jordan Hall comes in. Many non-deconstructed Christians are living fairly comfortably without a meaning crisis. And John Verveke and I have talked about this numerous times. The legacy religions, as John calls them, still afford protection from the meaning crisis. An abandonment of these religions and their practices and the community and all the embeddedness provokes what John calls a meaning crisis, and I think that's right. Late stage of that provoked what I noted with many of the people back in 2017, 2018, who found me hungering to talk about Jordan Peterson was nihilism-induced depression. That for some people, this 
this leaning and looking into <laughs> into the abyss. The abyss was pulling them in and they found haven in a religion. Nothing is unifying, given that what we spoke about for the you know first 90 minutes is the world is confusing. It's hard to make sense. We don't know what's real. We don't know what isn't. We don't know if we can trust the information that we're getting that's in front of our eyes. We don't know if we can trust the people that are around us. Do they right. have our best interests at heart? How do we make sense of the world? Religion provided a pretty good tool for that. And I, 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 I'm not sure whether it's possible to be a cultural Christian or a cultural Muslim or a cultural Jew. I, I wonder how important the belief bit is to the religion bit. Do you, do you pray? I meditate, which is as close as you're going to get. What do you mean? Want to try prayer? Sure. Well, I mean, what what prayers move you? Here's the problem with the belief thing. If I was sitting across the ta table from Chris Williamson, I might have made exactly the same move Eric made, except I would have prayed. <laughs> I don't know enough. I mean, I, I took my mum to Ripon Cathedral on Christmas Eve, and we went through a full service of 90 minutes with 13, 14, 15 hymns and a bunch of prayers in between. A lot of Christmas trees and decoration and stuff. But I think that would have been the first time that I would have heard something like that since primary school, since I was 11 or 10. Yeah. Is there religious music that moves you? And, and what follows here is a really nice treatment where where Eric has a guitar and walks through music and but but again right here I meditate. What, what, what's the difference between prayer and meditation? Well, prayer can be like meditation sometimes some prayers are very meditative but again my definition of a christian is someone who trusts jesus more than they trust themselves and uh many people i know whether it's nihilism induced depression or a bad circumstance well i think about a third day song cry out to Jesus. And Chris Williams said exactly. At one point he says, it really stinks that on YouTube you can't play music. Yeah, YouTube, that really, really stinks. So, Jordan Hall, all the way in. He's, he's He just strikes me as an all the way in guy. He's, he's not going to play around sitting like with his normal life and thinking, well, I'll think about this religion for a little bit. And I'll kind of keep it at arm's length and maybe I'll dabble in it here and there. Nope, 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 nope. He's moving to the town. He's buying the house. He's 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 going under the water all in or not in. I played some of this video about Jordan Peterson. And again, interesting. Half about the God of the gaps, but that's a... That we conjure up God to. One of the things 
that's been interesting is the ways Jordan has changed in the since I've been watching him in 2017. It isn't that he hasn't changed, but the way he describes the change in his wife is also interesting. Explain those things that we cannot yet explain. That's a very shallow dismissal of the fact of necessary faith. Faith is necessary in part because you don't know everything. When you saw Tammy's newfound faith and now her conversion mm -hmm. to the Catholic Church, her deepened faith, deepened faith, found faith, and now her conversion mm -hmm. to the Catholic Church, her deepened faith, deep right there, newfound faith. No, 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 deepened faith. Hmm, 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 hmm. How does that, what, 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 well, okay, earlier I talked about there's this, there's this Christianity that Tom Holland has pointed to that is all beneath the surface. I don't know about Tammy's upbringing, but Jordan gets taken to the church and, you know, mainline church in Canada until he gets to a point, doesn't want to go anymore, and he's a smart 11-year-old or 12-year-old. Chris Williamson talked about the fact, raised, you know, in, in, I don't, I don't remember exactly if he was raised in the UK. I think he was. But, um, you know, you get this. Boy, I've had interesting conversations with some Church of England uh, clergy about, about what on earth has happened in the UK. Fascinating. But Jordan very much sees this as a deepening faith. And I would say that is that is what we've seen from Jordan. I don't know that we've seen a transformation. Uh, uh, let me say that. We have seen a transformation, but it has been in line with what we've seen before. It's not sort of a U-turn like we see with Jordan Hall. It's much more of a transformation. And now, of course, Jordan's life was transformed by the events of 2016. And he's spoken about that in other places where suddenly he's famous. There's a good piece about fame in the Chris Williamson, Eric Weinstein video as well. He becomes famous. His, his public persona is no longer his own. All sorts of things have happened. And his faith is deepened. Now, again, what was so interesting about this is after Jordan comes back from his illness, he tries a big interview with Times of London, and that is an absolute train wreck. So it's like no interviews. And he's doing a few more. And now he's doing them with religious people. And he's, oh, it's going to be so, the timing of Jordan at this symbolic world summit, I'm not going to be there. And I'm not going to be there for a few reasons. The, the main reason is I have limited time that I can be away from church. And I would have to take a week for that. And I, for the most part, reserve my weeks for, the, the weeks are really intended for me to do speaking. And so if I'm not speaking at a conference, I'm probably not going because the money, the time, um, I just, I, I have very limited time, especially this year, I've got two sons getting married. So I have two weddings, got a ton of travel for those two weddings. Um, and so I reserve those four weeks for events that I am participating in, not just simply attending. The Hermes thing. 
you can tell in the comments in the video I released today. This 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 is this is going to be a big deal. I'm going to do more videos on this because there's a lot more to say. And of course, some of you think there's nothing more to say. No, there's there's actually a ton more to say about this. There's a great comment in the video about um, someone sharing that his daughter had anorexia. And this Sunday, we had Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's a boy. And of course, for for many years, people have made comments about, well, these these spirits that Jesus is exercising, is it epilepsy? Because people look at it. Or is it schizophrenia? So if I say, is anorexia a spiritual, is it a spirit? Boy, that's an interesting question. You can go a long ways with that. What again? Because what's happening now, what's happening now with the recession of modernity is one of the main questions impacting the religious conversation is what is a spirit? And if you've seen any big change from Jordan Peterson when he's talking about these things, he's talking about spirits and principalities and powers. So it's not the case that Jordan hasn't changed. A lot of people would have loved Jordan to have undergone the transformation of Jordan Hall and the journey of Jordan Hall. Very different. These men are at different places in their life. Jordan Hall has a daughter that is still living with him and his wife. Jordan and his wife are clearly planning their steps together as a couple. And it was his wife who, in a sense, brought Jordan to church. Because you go into a town of 8,000 and 93% of them are active churchgoers. It's going to be pretty tough, and especially many, a lot of Protestants, evangelicals, he said, an Orthodox, probably a Catholic too, but there's going to be people who you're starting to make friends. You're going to get invited to church in an evangelical town. It's going to happen. It's just part of it. And, you know, this gets, yeah. Jordan's path has been very different. Of course, his life was sort of destroyed by the media storm around C-16. His career as a clinician is destroyed, and he's still under attack from the College of, Ont of College in Ontario. And he loses his he loses his vocation as a university professor. So a lot of people would love to see Jordan, Tammy, and but Michaela and Julian are no longer children; they're grown adults. A marriage that's 30, let's see, his marriage is about the same, just about, because his marriage is very much, he's, so I've been married 36 years, so he's been married maybe 35 or 37. I remember talking to them, it was like one year difference, I don't remember which way, so a marriage of that long is a very different thing than a marriage of 20 years or 12 years. And of course, I just remember Jordan Hall mentioned that he actually just married his wife in the church with a potluck reception. I love it. So many people would have loved to see Jordan Peterson do this, but mm, it hasn't happened. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a different thing. 
fascinating. Just fascinating. In another video that just came out, of course, Algo sent it right up to me, and I watched it right away. Jordan on another Catholic stage. Interesting. And then here's a question for Jordan. Christians understand Jesus in ways that are consonant with your work's symbolic depictions of Christ. For example, as the archetypal king of kings, responsible bearer of cosmic suffering, and practical guide to avoiding temporal hell. However, we Christians additionally see Jesus as the historically real Lord, the myth in the language of C.S. Lewis who became fact, the God-man who was crucified, died for our sins, and was raised on the third day. So my question, Dr. Peterson, how do you relate your own conception of the Christ to this orthodox, little o, orthodox Christian conception? That question <laughs> was years in the making. That question was so finely tuned. That question is there to evoke the answer that people have been waiting to hear Jordan, basically Jordan Peterson, to do a Jordan Hall on. And I'm not even going to bother playing the answer. Not because it's a bad answer, but because it's an answer that we have heard Jordan do. And it's not a road answer. Jordan is thinking on his feet with all of the new deepening that he has been doing over the last number of years in conversation with Christians. But it is not the answer that Everyone has kind of been hoping to get the kind of answers that people are hearing from Jordan Hall. Although, I will tell you that, warning to Jordan Hall, they will celebrate you. They will celebrate your baptisms for the first five minutes. And after that, they will have ideas of their own with respect to especially the new theological formulations and applications that you share. Even if you just copied and pasted from a denominational, a denomination's dogmatic section, that then of course, now then you just invoke, Jordan Hall said something really good in the other podcast. I'm not going to dig it up right now, but it was really good about the food fight between denominations. And again, I'm not, when I say food fight, I don't intend to dismiss it. But anybody who's watched this channel long enough knows I am not here for that. Why am I not here for that? Not because I don't think some of those distinctions and differences are unimportant, but because there's a time and place for them, and it is probably not on YouTube with respect to what I desire to, how I desire to use YouTube. There are plenty of other channels where you can go and find theological combat between traditions. Have at it. If you want to participate in it, what do you need to get on YouTube? A Gmail account. YouTube will give you one for nothing. Go right ahead. And it's not that I, that, not that I don't think these are, are 
unimportant or not substantive and don't have implications. I certainly have my own. And again, if you want to know what I think, you can listen to the church channel and you can hear me teaching and preaching about all kinds of things. And every now and then on this channel, I'll get into some of it a bit, but I will not major in it. Because to one degree or another, C.S. Lewis had to say about the Protestant Reformation, if you want to look that up, he had a good point. And so I will happily share a stage with Christians from other, other traditions within Christianity and embrace them as Christians. But this transformation has been fascinating to watch. And so the two Jordans, Jordan Peterson and Jordan Hall, it's a very interesting case study. And it's not just an interesting case study in the two men. It's also a case study in the context in which this is happening. So Jordan Hall's just getting started. It's going to be fascinating to see how this goes. Jordan And Jordan Hall is not done, and Jordan Peterson is not done. Now, of course, every tradition would love to sort of claim Jordan as their own. Of course, every tradition would sort of claim any rando as their own. This is what Christianity is about. There's a lot going on here. And part of what I like about this is, I'm going to say it again, as a pastor... I watch transformations and conversions in lots of different ways. Leave a message. Plenty of you are going to have something to say. The, the catchphrase I say people, I say go to church. And what I mean by that is in some ways it's you have to engage in the human relationships around you. That's like the best way to go about that. You know, you have you have relationships, you have a family, you have some kind of community around you. And so that's the, the, the best place to go because in some ways that's the place that will have this procedural aspect to it that will will ground the other stuff. You know, it's like if you have to if you have to, you know, to help your kids with their homework or you have to do this this kind of really grounded stuff that has nothing that's very little to do with the ideology, you you get engaged in other other people's lives, then it it binds you in a different way, right? It binds you. And then like my you know, my father would um, he was going to church and I wasn't really living with him, but he was going to church and he would like kind of yeah, so those are elements of this conversation. Because I gotta go to church. Um, it's being being part of a church is part of Christian discipleship. And in that word discipleship, there's this word discipline, which is it's a discipline to go to church. It's I was what would be so great about actually going to a church is like you start going to a church so that when you do need like to be prayed for when you have something to be prayed for about you have a place to just say that you're dead on right Grizz, and that is what the church is for to know and be known to love and be loved to have a place to go where people can pray for you where they will welcome you in and this is, again, part of why I'm 
you know, I, 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 I want churches to have estuaries because it, it is, I know that it is difficult in many churches for people to, in a sense, come in and bring their real self. And what I mean by that is have to say what's on their mind or you can't wrestle with them. It's like, you know, so Plato, you know, as John reminds us is broad. So he's a wrestler. You can't wrestle over a screen. So maybe if it's paintball for Jesus, maybe it should be wrestling with Plato. Um, because, and, and in church, in a real space, now often it doesn't happen. I understand that. But at least there's a chance to actually have a relationship with grit. And that's part of why churches are local. They're relational, they're face-to-face, -face, they're in real life. Said about why would young people want to go uh, to church? And I, I feel like I want to have some, some kind of dynamic message or something that if they do find some reason to come, you know, I'm, I'm trying to fish, so I'm throwing bait and I'm trying to hook somebody. It's what Paul is doing too. It's he said about being evangelical, it's evangelism of some sort. Oh, fishers of men is the uh, yes is the promise. Yes, yes, correct. It's possessed. We did go to church today. I took communion. I I don't go to church to think or to rationalize God. I go to church to worship Him. Right. And, and that's, I'm happy with that. I'm, I'm very happy with that. And afterwards, during coffee hour, we can all argue about the God of our understanding, right? Yeah. But I think you're right. I think that the wild twin, I mean, I, the thing that led to my, my sort of dawning to consciousness of Christianity it was a 101 day vigil that I did in the forest. And I went into the forest you don't have to go crazy. Yeah. You actually have to go. You have to. You have to humble yourself and be and and do it right here, right now, right. Get up. You like I like how uh, Father Spemman talks about it for the life of the world. He says it starts when you get up and get ready, and you walk or you go to church. You start these. That's those are simple. I get up. <laughs> I brush my teeth, I take a shower, mm -hmm. I put on clothes, I go, the things of life, and we're ascending up into heaven. You're 